So um, be in prayer for Kevin. I know, track coach Kevin. Kevin Galbraith. Kevin got a new heart. Our prayers for him have been answered. He got a new heart. No, he, he actually had a heart transplant, and you found it on on Facebook. He had posted it. Ransel had sent a message to you all. Um, so I think it was about 12 days ago when the post was, so probably about two weeks that Kevin was a obviously a candidate and then recipient of a new heart. So not yet. I don't know if any, maybe Ransel had, but uh, so you're aware of that. And I, I hope to touch base with him. It's been a while since he and I have talked. So I'll have to uh, get a hold of him and see how, how the new part is working. So, so Lord, we thank you for Kevin. We thank you that for this heart transplant. Even as we found out this week and uh, here together, we ask that you would be, uh, Lord, pour your blessing upon him uh, in recovery, strengthening. I pray for his body to accept the heart in fullness and strength. And I pray for him in Jesus' name. Amen. And we ask today, Lord, that you would teach us by the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Ready, Chris? Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now, as we've been going through this study of the book of Acts, and I know it's been a few weeks for us here, but I bring back to your remembrance, uh, really the the heart uh, that I would say came forth from Pastor Chuck Smith, that if he had the opportunity to sit down with all the Calvary Chapel pastors that had come forth, and uh, if there was one book of the Bible he would want to talk heart to heart with the pastors, it was the book of Acts. And in taking up this, I, I received that and impart unto you the importance not of establishing repeated Pentecost in the church, you know, like, like somehow we would gather together in our meetings and try to pattern our services after that day on Pentecost. But rather, what's needed in the church today is for preaching that pierces the heart. You won't hear that at church growth seminars. Instead, uh, they'll want to make the church services more palatable and comfortable, if you will, for sinners. But on that, that day, on the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit is poured out, remember that the promise of the Father would be given They were to wait until they were endued with power from on high that the Spirit of God would come upon them and they would be witnesses unto Jesus. Now, in much uh, of having grown up and maybe like... I was talking one-handed. Okay. There we go. Hey, where is that? I don't dare set it down on here. So Pastor Chuck had grown up in a Pentecostal church and, and much of the services that he had grown up Uh, In many of the ways, they had established their meetings like they would have tarrying meetings. We just got to wait upon the Lord. We we need to wait like they did in the beginning. 
and and have Pentecost and he his word and testimony. Pentecost never came that way, but they they tried to repeat this somehow. Maybe we're not in one accord, and they looked for some mystical thing that was to be happening. But uh, when he grew up, and this is the part I hand off to you concerning the word of God. Now, when we come through Acts chapter two, this is my heart's desire for us that we would see not not so much how to repeat that day of Pentecost because it was amazing. Spirit came down, uh, rushing mighty wind, uh, tongues of fire came upon them. The, the, those who were there, the disciples, 120, began to speak in other tongues. An amazing supernatural day. But what came forth out of that was the word of God in boldness and empower the witness. We're going to find in Acts chapter 2 that on that day there was a powerful work of the Holy Spirit continuing into the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ with power. Now, my encouragement comes, and again, not from my upbringing, because as far as I could tell in the denomination I grew up in, the Holy Spirit was dead long before I showed up. Now, I, I'm not critical of that. I'm now aware that, as far as I can look back and tell, he only showed up in the creed that we would acknowledge uh, the triunity of God in, as we spoke forth these creeds. Now we see in Acts uh, 2, 2, the sound of the rushing mighty wind, tongues of fire, right? Again, uh, you might describe divided tongues or cloven, right? The, the idea that you could see the tongues, that fire's an amazing thing to be able to see that. But it, you also notice that fire, in its natural sense, it, it's, it's a, in, in, how would I say it? Unpredictable. Where those, where those tongues of fire really Go and how high they are. So I think you catch the sense that something supernatural is going on that day. Luke refers to this this place as a house, but 3,000 people were able to gather that day into hearing, and, and we know at least that were saved. And in this midst of this supernatural phenomenon, you are phenomena, you have the, the rushing uh, sound of the rushing mighty wind, and then you have these flames of fire. That we, that we talk about. And then we have the gift of tongues given that day. Verse four, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the fulfillment of the promise that they would be baptized with the Spirit. And that's Luke recording in history. And this is what began. Don't, don't ever miss the history of the book of Acts that this is how, how the church in its birth came to be that the Spirit was poured out upon them in that way. They were baptized in the Spirit, and the gift of tongues was together with that. Now, some have taken that in their desire to repeat that day that they want tongue services or their service filled with tongues at any time in the services. Now, I see in the Scriptures what Paul said and records to the church at Corinth how it is that he desired to speak five words unto the church, five clear words would be better than 10,000 tongues in a service. Now, as we see that, what comes forth out of this, it evidently known unto us now, on that day, never heard of before, in that these this other tongues that the Bible speaks about, that there were those there speaking an unknown tongue to them. So those that were speaking this, they didn't know what they were saying. But as those that were there, so the Spirit gave them the ability or or gave them the utterance to say things clearly in another language 
that was known to other men, but not known to the one speaking it. That's the supernatural work. And I've heard so many pastors, I, I don't know who started this idea, they started saying, well, it wasn't really the miracle of the tongues, but it was the miracle of the hearing. I, I read through this and I'm like, never does it say that God enabled the hearing of those who were there, but they're actually named that they came from <coughs> all these different places. The supernatural thing was those that did not know that language were speaking in other tongues. And I, I think there's some 15 peoples, different people groups identified. Now, when it comes down to it, this gift of tongues and this enabling that the Holy Spirit brought and the works that he gave with utterance, for, for those that had received that gift, and, and the gift of tongues always works this way, at, at first you have to get past this, am I going to be speaking foolishly or I don't know what I'm saying? And that's how the gift of tongues works. And so, it's, again, the way Pastor Chuck shares it with me as I, as I get this heart to heart from him, it's an insult to the intellect. That you would speak in tongues and say something unto God that you don't know what you're saying. And that's what took place that day. Now, I love the witness that describes in verse 5 that there were those dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, so the rushing wind, and maybe there was enough of a stir of all these people speaking in a different language, that the multitude came together, and they're confused. I mean, if you can imagine 15 different languages being spoken at the same time, that's what took place that day. Those that came and watched were confused. Everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, as we, we talk of this and have this, uh, verses 7 through 11 lists all these places that where the Jews were from, they were there. Now, they are amazed and they're marveled, and they, they recognized that all these men who were speaking were we're from Galilee. They're Galileans. And yet, they're side by side, and obviously they, they all, in some way, shape, or form, speak, you know, in, again, a common language, but their native tongue, and they're hearing them. So the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, all these nations, and at the end of verse 11, look what they say. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, as this has been undertaken by others to repeat the gift of tongues in such a way to have that day, many have then undertaken to say that the gospel was preached in tongues. And if you look carefully at what the Word of God says, it's not for preaching. It's not, tongues is not for speaking one to another. Those that were there from these other languages they were bearing witness to the evidence of the truth that those men who did not know this language were actually speaking their own tongue, but they were actually not speaking to them who were there. They were speaking unto God, the wonderful works, praising God, glorifying God. Now, as we undertake to look at the history in such a way, Pastor Chuck gives a story of, of a visitor from Palm Springs. A man had brought his fiance, and they were going to meet with Pastor Chuck after service, so they came on a midweek service. And as they came on a midweek service, it happened to be that they were there for a night when they did Afterglow, where they would give opportunity to wait upon the Holy Spirit. They would, they would be waiting for the gifts of the Spirit to be given. And one of the, one of the ladies there began to speak out in tongues, and Pastor Chuck's wife, Kay, has the gift of interpretation, 
And she began to give the interpretation for the tongues that had taken place. Well, it turns out on that night, the gal who spoke in tongues spoke in French. And Kay doesn't know French. But she's giving this interpretation. And Pastor Chuck says, I, he, he, he said of himself, he said, I knew enough of the root words in Latin that I actually knew that this lady who was speaking in tongues, it was a known language because he was recognizing some of these root words of like praise and glory. And so when Kay gives the interpretation, after the service, he meets with that couple and, and the young lady says, before I, I thank you for meeting with us, but before we talk about what we came to talk about, I need to know what happened. What was that? And then Pastor Chuck goes on to say, would you believe that neither one of those ladies, who the one who spoke and the one who interpreted tonight, neither one of them speak French. And I know this because I'm married to one of them. And he went on to say that, that praising and glorifying God, much like what happened that day on Pentecost, this lady who was standing by, she says, and that wasn't just French. That was an aristocratic French. And this gal who was there knew and understood what was happening, but it wasn't for witnessing unto her. It was to glorify and praise God. Now in that day of Pentecost, verse 12 and 13 describes they were all amazed and perplexed and like, what does this mean? This is the history. So we don't really want to repeat this in our church services. We don't want confusing, perplexing. You know, when we gather together, what comes forth out of the book of Acts, glance down at Acts 2.42. I'll tell you where we're headed tonight because i got a lot of ground to cover. Look at Acts 2.42. This is what comes out of this. What comes out of Pentecost is the church does not give themselves to continually waiting in one accord, praying together, waiting and waiting and waiting for the repeat of Pentecost. That's not what comes forth. What comes forth is they gave themselves to four things. To the apostles' doctrine, right? to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayers. That's what comes forth for the church after 3,000 are added to the church, that they go forth, and that's what describes their meetings going forward. Well, what could this mean? Peter stands up, verse 14. He stands up with the eleven and raised his voice and said, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. That was the mocking. If you look back at verse 13, they're like, they're drunk. That's the type of service that was going on that day. And with them saying all these words, it says, hey, it's only nine in the morning. They're not drunk. It's only the, again, in, in the, the language there, third hour of the day. So what is this? Verse 16. Now, as he speaks this and he gives answer, what is this that is going on? What, what are you going to do that day? Never before happened. What are you going to say to somebody? <clears throat> Look where Peter goes. This was spoken by the prophet Joel. Thus giving answer for the spiritual phenomena according to what was written in the scripture. Hey, if you can't answer what's going on in your church services according to the word of God, how do you identify that that which is going on has come forth from God? Now, that may not seem important to you, but I still find today as I meet believers, especially in, in Fargo-Moorhead who had, who had uh, attended a particular church that will remain nameless in Fargo First Assembly back in the 90s, okay, that a lot of 
additional spiritual practices that had and phenomena that had no biblical basis for reason as to what's going on. Holy laughter, barking like dogs, things like that. They was brought in, was accepted, was promoted, and various, well, things happened that you couldn't open up your Bible like Peter did that day and say, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now, I believe what happened on that day and with history and the way that this is handed off, it's an important thing. Peter did not give his opinion. Oh, the Spirit was really moving tonight. He was powerful, and um, that's not the way that it was given. What was given is that as the Spirit came upon them, and you're going to watch what comes forth in explanation was really now the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore that leads into the teaching of the Word of God. Rather exciting as you unfold the book of Acts, and it's a great, it's a great thing because now we have searchable digital versions of the Bible. You can search a word. You can search a word. That's, oh, there, there we go. You can search a word. And you can study a theme throughout a book when you see how the Holy Spirit repeats. And it's the word. If you just did the word, just take like logos and, and search that in the book of Acts, you will see how prevalent it is that the word of God goes forth, the preaching of the word. And, and that's what I hand off to us. So he gives a biblical evidence for a basis for what they are observing and notice he'll point them to the scriptures now i i like in this that anything that's going on and that would be happening in the church you could say look at this in the bible look at what happened in elijah's day look 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 what happened in the book of acts and you can give that basis now if we declare and believe that the bible is god's word the final authority of all, for all faith and practice. Doesn't that show up in, in statements of faith? <clears throat> That's what's put into place. If we believe that, then the Bible must be, if you will, the touchstone by which we measure the truthfulness for authenticity of an experience. Okay, now you see how this comes forth. Anything that happens in church, you should be able to come to the scriptures and say, this matches the Bible. Not only is it the Bible the measuring stick by which we determine truth, it is also the guide by which we practice the truth. So when the Bible sets guidelines for the spiritual gifts, then the church must practice the spiritual gifts accordingly. Now this works both ways. In coming through teaching to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul describes unto them really the gifts that are for manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to love, to pursue love. The greatest thing is love, the fruit, and, and, and what that all really means. And then he goes on to talk about how prophecy and tongues should be practiced in the church. At most, two or three. And if there's tongues, an interpretation. And he goes on to describe all this, but then he also says to stir up those gifts and so that there should be those gifts at work in the church. So what works both ways? You can be so like, I this what happened today was not in the Bible. I don't want anything to do with the spiritual gifts. And sadly, as I talk about those that attended that particular church that remained nameless in the 90s in Fargo, there was probably just as much deadness going on on the other side of 
We don't want anything to do with any of the spiritual gifts. So they actually, in con- being contrary to the scripture, you do realize the Bible says to not forbid speaking in tongues. And yet, what do many churches practice? They literally forbid the speaking of tongues in their services. Now, as you catch up to this, what happened on that day, and the biblical basis is the Bible, not our emotions, not our opinions. And if you start to validate an experience by, or the truth by an experience, and anything you experience, you could say, then it's got to be true. Well, you've actually opened up a whole bunch of trouble. Again, Pandora's box, if you will, if you know Greek mythology. Don't open that box. Don't open that box. It's filled with disease, lies, evil, right? And the moment you validate and say, my experiences make something true. Well, what does Peter do? This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Do you know that Peter doesn't pull out his Bible that's in his pocket on his digital handheld computer device and pull out and and go in his his Bible and find Joel chapter 2? He doesn't pull the scroll out of his backpack, pull it out, unroll the scroll. He doesn't do that. The Word of God is in his heart. And this is the part that, that we see in that which the Word, Peter was ready, he was able... He immediately, what was going on before him, was quickened by the Spirit, brought to remembrance. He knew this promise and prophecy that Joel had. And this is where he goes in 17. He says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. I absolutely love that the Word of God, anything going on, you can say, look at this in your Bible. When I found Calvary Chapel St. Paul, and I met the group down there, and, and spent time with them and fellowship, went to the men's retreats, started listening to, to Pastor Chick teach the Bible. And, and what I discovered is like everything that they're doing, they're like, this is, this is this chapter of the Bible. I saw confrontation biblically carried out to restore, or in the case I saw another time when the man had to be disfellowshipped because he was not repented of his sin. And this is, this is, this is Matthew 18, 15 through 18, right before your eyes. On this day, Peter goes to the, to the prophecy of Joel, and now the Word of God is giving explanation, answer, meaning, basis, instruction, guidelines, all this chapter and verse. What you're seeing before your eyes, the Bible has already spoke about. Came to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And remember them. I don't know if that is the case, but as I get older, I don't remember my dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What's he saying? He's saying what you're seeing Joel prophesied about What you're looking at is what the pouring out of the Spirit is. And it happened. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke, or of smoke. We haven't seen that yet, have we? Yet Joel prophesies of the end. Earth will be shaken, sky will roll up, sun and the moon and the stars fall from heaven. Joel prophesies. On that day, Peter is describing... These are the last days. He's describing unto them the Holy Spirit will be poured out in the last days. Do you understand? From the time Jesus went back to heaven, the Spirit is now poured out. 
This is going to continue all the way through unto the second coming of Jesus Christ. As he describes that, describing how the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you understand? The time period in which we're now living, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not so we can have speaking in tongues in all of our services and have Pentecost. Where's the tongues of fire? Where's the rushing mighty wind? Oh, we'd, we'd like that type of powerful interaction with the Holy Spirit. But what we'll see through the book of Acts as we continue to study it, we will see the Spirit given through the laying on of hands. We will see that those that are saved as they believe and receive Jesus Christ, they're born of him. And then many times as they're baptized into Jesus Christ, then immediately following, they'll lay hands on for them to receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Times are recorded that when the Holy Spirit's given in that way, then those that receive the Spirit also receive the gift of tongues. Some have said that tongues is the evidence of being saved. That doesn't line up with the Bible. And as you undertake this, look at verse 21 again with me. Joel's prophecy is a salvation verse. Holy Spirit is poured out, right? In the days preceding the coming of the judgment of God, what's God going to do? He's going to save. He's going to deliver. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to go forth in power. And if we could describe the last 2,000 years, what would we describe? Holy Spirit has been poured out, began in Pentecost, continues to be poured out unto the preaching of the gospel that goes forth in power. Paul says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to those of you at Rome. And he goes on to say, and he said, I want to go even farther with the gospel. He says, I've made it my, my following of Jesus to preach the gospel where no man has ever heard of Jesus before, lest I build on another man's foundation. You know what he was asking of the, of the saints in Rome? He's like, will you in Rome send me on to Spain? That man wanted to continue with the power of the gospel. Now, unto this, fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel that this is for salvation, where does Peter go next? Well, he repeats now, men of Israel. So he addressed all those who were there hearing the tongues, Hey, all of you who have come here to Jerusalem and you're hearing this, they're not drunk. This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And as unto a work of salvation, now he preaches the gospel. He says, men of Israel. And where does he start with the gospel? He says, hear these words. And he now preaches Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles. I love that. Jesus tested, approved by his works. If you test the miracles of Jesus... According to the scriptures, you come to one conclusion. He's the Messiah. If you see the specific messianic prophecies that he would open the eyes of the blind and he would open the ears of the deaf and he would cause those that were dumb to speak, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He begins to preach this concerning the mighty signs and wonders, the miracles, the power of God at work through Jesus. And then he says, you, you know this. You yourselves, you know this. He's preaching the gospel not to those who did not know Jesus, but to those who were very well acquainted with what Jesus had done. 23. Speaking of Jesus, him being delivered by the determined purpose foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. 
it does not get more powerful than you're talking to the people and, and bringing forth the truth that according to God's will, plan, prophecy, foreknowledge that the Messiah would suffer and die. But he brings it forth in a personal way as those that are there. And he says, you, you killed Jesus. You crucified the Messiah. And in describing this, that he had been put to death, there were probably those there that day who saw the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Or certainly had known, it's it's 50 days prior, they had certainly known that he had been crucified, and they probably also heard, heard the stir concerning he was raised from the dead. The gospel comes forth in power. Look at 24. Speaking of Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So the idea of that the bonds of the pain or sorrow of death could not hold Jesus. And that's the way he's preached in the gospel. It was impossible that death could have power over Jesus. And in that preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he now comes back to the scriptures. You know, as he preaches the resurrection, the Bible says this, to the, to the Greeks who seek after wisdom, the resurrection is folly. What do you mean come back from the dead? Nobody comes back from the dead. And they, Paul, when he's on Mars Hill, in the moment he mentions resurrection, the philosophers check out. But the Jews who seek a sign that is this God and is this at work, and that's his crowd, and as he preaches the resurrection... And then he gives them a biblical basis for the teaching of the resurrection, and he goes to Psalm 16. <clears throat> what comes forth from the day of Pentecost? The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures and raised again from the dead according to the scriptures, and goes on to say, We we know and believe that the Bible has said that this Jesus whom you crucified, he's the Messiah. As he goes to Psalm 16 that day, and he quotes David, and David said concerning him, concerning Jesus, he says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. That's a strange psalm if David's talking about himself. He says, therefore, my heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad, moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. We get that, right? If you die in faith, believing in God, you can talk about your flesh resting in hope. But look at the hope he's talking about. He says, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Hades is the holding place of the dead. It's, it's, the, it's the common understanding, even amongst the Greeks, as well as he's talking, and, and it's a Greek word, but it's synonymous with, with the Jews that there is a hell a place where the dead go. And in the, the, the prophecy in David, his psalm, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways, excuse me, the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you that the patriarch David, he's dead. He's buried. His tomb is in this part of Jerusalem. You can still see it today. You can go to the place where David's tomb is and you can see David in Psalm 16 is not talking about himself. What's Peter say? Peter stands up and says this and and again gives answer that Jesus went into hell. Right? And this is the place. The Hades couldn't hold him. Well, which part of hell? 
Remember when Jesus taught about Lazarus? The rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus is the poor man begging at the gate. Uh, excuse me. Lazarus is, yeah, Lazarus is the poor man. The rich man, they're separated. There's this gulf or this chasm in between. We're told that the poor man is in Abraham's bosom while the rich man is in torment and you can't cross from one side to the other. And he basically pleads to send Lazarus back from the dead to preach the gospel to his brothers. Which part did Jesus go into? Jesus did not go into hell to suffer. He did not go to the suffering part of hell. Don't follow those doctrines that teach that Jesus had to suffer to atone sin in hell. Not, not the Bible whatsoever. Where did Jesus suffer and atone for sin? Where was his bloodshed? Where was his life given? On the cross. So when Peter describes that he went to the souls and preached the gospel, it's in the paradise side, if you will, Abraham's bosom uh, portion of Hades, in which those who were waiting for the promise of the Messiah, they're in that side, and that's where Jesus went. It also is referenced that he came to set those, uh, he opened, Psalms, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 61 prophesies that he would go and do that. Verse 30, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever sought out in the Bible concerning what it really says about heaven. Do you realize you have got to put a lot of understanding together from different parts of the Bible to get a glimpse and understanding of what heaven's really like. In fact, when Paul, I believe Paul went there, when he describes heaven, he says it was such a glorious place. The things he heard in heaven, the things he saw, he says, it, no man. He's basically describing he was not permitted to speak of the things that he saw there. Here David describes the resurrection of Jesus Christ by prophecy. Do you know how many places in the Bible you can turn to concerning the resurrection in the scriptures? There's not a lot of them, but when they're there, you hold on to them with all you have because that's how God put it there. Psalm 16 is a valuable psalm describing that Jesus would be raised from the dead and then Peter says, we're the witnesses. Now, why was the Spirit given? For them to be witnesses unto Jesus. What's Peter doing? bearing witness to Jesus, risen from the dead, according to the Scriptures, crucified according to the Scriptures. Now what happens next in verse 33, I love what he now says. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, so not only did Jesus suffer and die, he raised from the dead, and now he takes it to its outcome. They saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and and by faith he's, he's describing where he's at, fulfilling prophecy that Jesus is at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the promise? Joel's prophecy pouring out of the Spirit after Jesus had ascended into heaven, and now he's saying, what you see in here, look at that last phrase in 33, he has poured out this which you now see in here. If you thought nothing happened on that day and these guys just told stories, then you would be a liar and you wouldn't be following the historical account. What does Peter say? He says, 
Today you saw the pouring out of the Spirit according to the Scriptures. What you see in here today, this is the promise given to Joel in prophecy many years ago. And you who are here today, you are watching this. You're seeing it. You're hearing it. This is exactly what the promise of Joel's prophecy is. Now as he described that, I recall Jesus' words. Jesus had promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said to his disciples, he says, I'll pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. What are they seeing and hearing? Hey, we as believers should have no question to say, I mean, we should have no problem giving the answer to the question, did anything happen? When we now can say what? Hey, (coughs) what's recorded in the Bible on that day, they saw and heard, they witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit. the shedding forth of God's gift to the church. Peter continues, 34 and 36, he says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He goes to Psalm 110. Take Psalm 16 concerning the resurrection. Take Psalm 110 concerning the the rising to the right hand of the power of God. He says, therefore, let the house of Israel know assuredly That God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What makes him Lord? He's risen from the dead. Messiah, chosen, chosen to suffer and die, chosen to ascend to heaven to rule and to reign. And the Bible prophesies that he will come and rule and reign here on the earth. Now, out of all that, on that day, in the giving and pouring out of the Holy Spirit, They did not replicate services of speaking in tongues from that point forward, but rather when the Spirit came upon them, gave power to declare the witness of the the person of Jesus Christ with great power, spoke of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happened that day? Men were cut to the heart. What's needed in the church today? Preaching that pierces the heart. Maybe a, I don't know, have the hellfire brimstone preachings gone away? I think we have seen a church, if you will, emasculated concerning the truth of the judgment and the truth of hell and, and the, the fear of God concerning judgment. And as they're cut to the heart, they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're convicted. Peter says unto them in 38, repent. Change your mind. Turn around. Changed mind that leads to a changed life. John the baptizer had led that whole course. He was preparing people for repentance. Change your ways. And now Jesus had preached repentance. And now in the preaching of the gospel, it's repentance. Let every one of you be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you. Verse 39. As he, Fully, he's taking the Bible, prophecy of Joel, watching all this take place, and in preaching the gospel, he's describing how the promise of the Spirit would come. It is of necessity to be born of Jesus, to be born again of the Spirit, in order to be baptized in the Spirit. He describes that promise is for you and your children, And then this last phrase lets us know it's for us. And to all who are afar off. 
When you study the book of Acts, it, and then Paul catches this, he describes the Jews who were near, that's their Messiah, and then he describes the Gentiles who were formerly afar off, but in Christ they're brought near. As many as our Lord of God will call. And with many other words, he says unto the people, you're really, really nice people, would you please come and have a better life? He doesn't say that. If you look at 40, what does he say? He says, save yourselves from this wicked and perverse generation. He, he's exhorting them. He's saying, you need to get saved. I'm pleading with you. You're here today. You're hearing this truth. If you do nothing with Jesus, you, you're going to be in hell. He says, but how do we know that if you believe in Jesus, you can be saved from hell? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And he says, save yourselves. You can't save yourself. So what is he saying? He's calling them to repentance, and he's calling them to believe. This is the preaching that Peter had that day concerning the crooked and wicked generation. How would they be saved? By believing and receiving the gospel. 41 describes there were 3,000 saved. Look at that phrase, gladly received his word. Isn't that beautiful? Gladly received his word. They were baptized 3,000 souls were added to them. And then I've already brought you to 42. What did they continue in from that point forward? The word of God. The apostles' doctrine. The, the early church placed a priority on the study and teaching of the word of God. How many of the apostles would, would take them through the prophecies of the Old Testament? Turn in the scroll of Isaiah. Look what it says here. They'd be reading and teaching. This is Jesus in, in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. They'd go to Psalm 22 and says, Look, the Lord put this in her in advance. David prophesied of the, that the Messiah would be pierced. The cross is already talked about. And these are the type of things they were teaching. And you can go all the way back. Genesis 3.15. The promise of the Messiah. This is exciting things they were, they were teaching and so when the Spirit had been poured out upon those 3,000, they began to be taught. And then look how important right, fellowship is, koinonia, giving, sharing, oneness, community. I mean, all these ways, you know, we, we say community now because communion is a part of the word. And all this, every, trying to understand the oneness, the distribution, this word koinonia, it's there's a oneness that shares in this thing we call fellowship, and that's what the early church did. Koinonia. Communion, contribution, distribution, sharing, and you get an, a little idea. Now, in the breaking of the bread, that is the communion we speak about, the demonstration of the oneness that all the believers believe in Jesus Christ, partaking of his life. Now, as we take that, and then prayer. How important that even though it's listed forth, it's not that it's least important, but prayer is on that list in such a way that we would see the emphasis was upon prayer. In fact, we'll get to Acts 6 when there's so many needs um, in taking care of the saints in the church and, and the apostles are approached and they say, we cannot leave the word of God in prayer. And they appointed six deacons to care for those matters to distribute to the to the widows because prayer was such an important part of the church if we just do this if we if we model spirit-filled church and we model it after not tongue services but rather or waiting services or holy wind or fire 
or some kind of like, I'm just waiting for an, I, I hope there's an utterance in tongues tonight during the service. And many Pentecostal churches have gone after that. I say rather go after that which comes out of that. And Acts 2 describes how important prayer, the word of God, fellowship, and our communion or breaking bread, eating together, sharing in that. Do you realize something? That's attainable every time. Every time we get together, Acts 2.42, not only is it attainable, but we can get really good at it by preparing ourselves for that concerning the Word of God and prayer. Fear came upon every soul in 42. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, look back at, if you're in your Bible, look, just look back at Acts 1. What's Luke say? Of all that Jesus both began to do and to teach, that's what he recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and he goes on to describe the, the teaching of Jesus and the work of Jesus continued into the book of Acts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And supernatural signs, wonders were done through the apostles. The continuing work of Jesus through the ones that he sent out into the world. All who believed were together, had everything in common, sold their possessions, goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. That's what was happening. That The agape love describes that I got, you got. And there were great needs that had come up. There were probably many in Jerusalem who were there for the Pentecost feast, got saved and didn't go anywhere. They needed places to stay and to meet those needs. They began to sell everything and bring it into a common, if you will, a communal sort of living. And then you see that from that point forward, that's actually where the problems will arise in the church. And later on, when Paul's going out instructing the churches, he's describing unto them, he says, mind your own business, work with your own hands. He who does not work does not eat. They're not establishing here that this is how things are supposed to be for Christians, but rather describes what happened in the church there. And in the beginning, it was a really good thing up until chapter 5. And in chapter 5, when there were those that lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira had, they wanted the glory and honor and praise of man concerning the view of the church that they had given everything, but yet they actually did not give it all, but held a part back. And it's recorded the, the trouble that came out of that. So look at 46 and 47. They continued daily in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from uh, and from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God having favor with all the people. Now, think of one of the most wonderful things that is to work this out into our fellowship in the oneness of Jesus Christ, what church is to have what they had in the beginning was the power of the Holy Spirit to live our lives in the word of God, prayer, fellowship, breaking bread together. I love when we get together on Sunday evenings for service. I love when the church gathers together. Anytime we're getting together, in that the time that we have together, and, and, and you know what Pastor Chuck always would share with all the pastors? Whenever you're getting the church together, he says, have a, just a bit of the word to share with them. We got together on Sunday morning, Easter sunrise service for the first time ever as a church, and I'm not trying to repeat anything I grew up with, and I'm not trying to do anything like that. I'd say, but say what? Let's gather together, and let's be together, and let's be together early in the morning. It'll make the day special. And it did. And I invited two other guys to share just a snippet from the Word of God. So the three of us are going to share from the Word of God. And then when we're done, we're going to eat together. 
So we had the word of God, we had prayer, we had fellowship, and then we had, and you should have seen the fellowship that carried, you're like, did I do the service too early? People were done eating by 8 o'clock, we had service at 10, and for a full hour between 8 and 9 o'clock before we gathered to pray, the church fellowshiped with one another and just chattering and meeting and talking with one another, and, and this can be done. Now, here we go. <clears throat> Look at 47. That's the environment that brought this forth. So the early church did not have door-to-door evangelism. You realize that? They did not have an evangelism program, but what happened was that this place where they would gather together, word of God, prayer, fellowship, I would say it this way, the love became thick. And what happened, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, I'll quote Pastor Chuck here because it reaches my, my life to share with you. He says this, he says, I spent the first 17 years of my ministry trying to build the church myself. I was very unsuccessful in doing it. Now, for, for, for me now, this last year was 17 years. Began in 2004. So I take these things to heart. I, I've known this, what Pastor Chuck has said. He had gone from church to church in, in the denomination where he started pastoring. He would be there for a couple of years. He'd go through all his sermons. He would be pleading with God for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. He'd be asking for these things. And for 17 years, nothing's happening. He thought, maybe I should fast and pray. He'd go out when he was in Tucson. He would spend three or four days fasting and praying in the desert, taking just a jug of water and him alone in his Bible and he'd come back, and, and I think he did that in the beginning of the week, come back to the midweek service, and he was so weakened he couldn't even teach the Bible study. And because he was trying so hard for God to be at work. Here's what he says. Then while reading God's word one day, I read again the words of Jesus to Peter. I say unto you that you are Petros, you are a little pebble. Again, he says, but on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. He says, the word I popped out to me. I read it again. I will build my church. All of a sudden, I saw what I had been trying to do. I'd been trying to do the Lord's work for him. It wasn't my job to build the church. It was his. When the church becomes what God wants it to be, I love this. When the church becomes what God wants it to be, then God will do for the church that which he has declared he will do. And what he desires to do, he will add to his church daily those who should be saved. What's, what's my undertaking? I, I want to be that for which Jesus wants us to be for his church. And I, I like this. And, and 17 years. How long have we been doing Calvary Chapel Grand Forks? Well, it's not been 17 years yet. See, I listen to things like that. And it's been said, it's been said that that hope or if, if you're mining for gold, when do you quit? What, what if you, you stop and you've been working at this for 20 years and, and you've been trying to get gold for 20 years and you stop and that's it no more, only to have somebody else pick up where you left off digging and in two months strike gold. Now, all I'm saying is, I, the Word of God is the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring this forth, the preaching of the gospel. Let's be honest. If we become what God wants us to be, our goal is to become what God wants us to be. 
You've heard me talk about genuine church, Romans 12. You've heard me talk about the Word of God, fellowship, prayer, breaking of bread. Hey, these services, when we gather together, they're wonderful. Paul tells the church at Corinth, because their services weren't wonderful. You know what he says unto them? He says, when you guys get together, he says, some of you are getting drunk, others of you are going hungry, and you call that a communion service. My paraphrase. And he says unto them, he says, your meetings are doing more harm than they are good. And it's like, it comes down to this. Our part to be the church is when we gather together to do those things that the early church did in order that our services, when we gather together, that they're good. And the Lord gets to talk to us. And, and we're stirred up. And, and these are the things. And we're not doing chapter 3 tonight so you can breathe a sigh of relief. It would be like me trying to take you to the buffet and taking you on your third plate and say, all right, now get another plate and let's eat some more Word of God. So we'll pick up with with Acts chapter 3 when I'm back. Next week I'm in Mexico. I'll be sending a guest speaker up your way. I know who I want. Uh, I haven't heard, I haven't asked him yet, but I know who I want to have come up and um, I'll get that all in place for you. So we'll pick up Acts 3 when I'm back, which is the, what's two weeks from today? 15th. That'll be Acts 3. Prepare yourself for Acts 3. Acts 3 is wonderful. It, it's, a, it's a great undertaking to be, not only does Chuck leave, leave this off, what was happening that the church became what God wanted them to be, and then he shows, and then he shows how the church becomes more as he then can send them forth and preach in the gospel, the, the mighty signs and works and power and wonder. And I'm interested in this stuff. I keep praying for Grand Forks. Ever since I lived here, had been here, and then when this door opened up for us to start Bible studies up here and all that, it's like, I, I know God's in this. I, I know with all my heart that, that he wants to have a spirit-filled Bible-teaching church in Grand Forks. Not those who are all word and they dry up, not those who are all spirit and they, they blow up, but rather that word of God working together with the Holy Spirit. That the Lord would add to its church daily those being saved. Now when days get worse and worse and you can see the enemy gaining all of his ground and territory and starting to raise his banners, how many churches now, they no longer have the word of God? There will be a time when there will be a famine for the hearing of the word of God. And my part to us is let's be ready. Let's be prayerful. And when the Lord wants to do his thing, we're going to be right where he wants us to be at. So Heavenly Father, we ask for your spirit to be upon us in all manner of power to go forth and be witnesses unto you that the word of God concerning the prophecies of Jesus would be preached in power, and we ask for your spirit to give power and witness unto Jesus in his gospel. And then, Lord, we ask you to save and add to your church. Lord, new believers, we, we could, Lord, from our perspective, we were, were longing for those to come to faith that, that they could be made disciples. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.